Well, welcome to the session on why gender matters. Fun topic, fun conversation, but serious business. You know, the, the topic of uh, gender has really changed over the years. You, you used to be able to get up and be able to talk about gender and crack all kinds of jokes, and people would think it was funny. And now when you do that, they think like you're making fun of people. But I'm going to try one out just in case, just, you know, because of what it, what it used to be like before you got people got all offended or anything. Do you, does anyone know how to tell the difference between boys and girls? Okay, this is why this class is important right here. <laughs> do you know how to tell the difference? It's very obvious. I'm going to tell you how to identify the difference between the boys and the girls. Are you ready for this? If a girl is brushing her teeth and the toothpaste falls off, she gets new toothpaste. You know you're a boy if when the toothpaste falls off, you scoop it up and just keep going. Okay? That is the difference. That is the difference. See, that's, that's why you can't tell jokes anymore. Like, half this room already was offended, and they're like all the dudes. Like, like, the girl's like, wait a minute, I scoop it up too. No, you don't. You don't scoop it up. Uh, so, so gender. Uh, boys and girls, the differences and, and the challenges that we face today. You know, here's the, here's the thing. The enemy from the very beginning has really been trying to twist and pervert everything to turn everything that God created into being an enemy of him. And so and the gender is really one of those, uh, the, really the current popular thing that the culture has latched on to and have uh, really trying to, to twist it and make it something that it's not. I do want you to know from the outset that the, during this presentation, I'm going to make what would be considered generalizations, just like the one I did, Not although they're not going to be jokes. Um, generalizations about boys, about girls, about men, about women. And what I want you to know is those are 100% correct 80% of the time. Follow me on that. Okay, because you're going to hear some of these things and most of them you're going to be like, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. But then if you were to think about it critically, you would think of a boy or girl, a man or a woman who say, well, that's not true for them. That does not mean. And that's why this is so important, because in our world today, all of the issues that we're facing with gender really stem from a lack of understanding of what gender is supposed to be. And so as a result, we end up putting our own definition on top of it. And when we think that they're non-conforming, then all of a sudden, maybe that person's not really a boy or not really a girl. Okay, so I'm here to try to help equip you. Um, people in the church, which by the way, you're going to be in the church and you're probably going to have these conversations and you're going to use a lot of scripture to support your vantage point. But when you go outside of the church and into the marketplace and you're beginning to engage people in the gender conversations there, they're going to not necessarily trust the Bible as the authoritative truth. And so for them, if you start quoting verses, they're going to start wondering, okay, but that's not relevant for today. So while we know it is, the people that you might engage in that, the people who are coming into your church, who are questioning from the outside, or people you're engaging in conversations with, they may not say, well, I'm going to trust the Bible first and foremost, although we do. And so that's where I want to give you some of the research and some of the background to help you understand why, uh, what, what, what is true about gender. But in addition to that, I also want to give you tips and ideas of how you can help to shape and form your ministry so that you can make sure that you're reinforcing God's design for boys and God's design for girls and you're not inadvertently missing something important for those genders. Make sense? 
All right, quick survey here. Hopefully we'll do better on this one than we did on the first one. If you work with children, raise up your hand. Like elementary, preschool, nursery, raise your hand. All right, that's awesome. If you work with teenagers, raise up your hand. If you don't know who you work with, raise up your hand. <laughs> you work with them all, raise up your hand. Let me see that. Kids and youth, awesome. Very good. How about if you have kids in the home? All right, very good. Good, cool. Um, so let me ask a couple more survey questions. Which of the two genders, if you were to identify a gender that loves, generally participates in worship more, which gender would it be? Wow, did you all meet and discuss this ahead of time? I think we just voted and some of it was unanimous. Yeah. Girls generally, I think you would say, enter into worship more. Uh, which, which group, uh, which gender, boys or girls, if you're asking for volunteers for something that they don't know, which gender generally volunteers first? Boys, right? So we already notice some things in our ministry where there's differences between boys or girls. So what, do you, what happens, what do you do? And this might be a little bit more in the children's ministry. So think about elementary age. If boys are not as engaged as girls are, they're a little bit more distracted. What do we typically, typically think about those boys during the worship time when they're not engaged? What's wrong with them, right? Yeah, come on, get up there. Go up there, be a part of worship, stop playing around, and, and we try to correct them, right? What about girls? When they don't volunteer, we can end up sometimes saying, well, come on, get up there and start to volunteer. One of the reasons why this talk about gender is so important is we can inadvertently reinforce stereotypes or communicate to them something that's not true. Let me give you an example. If you have a group of boys who is not engaging in worship and they're being very distractive and you go up to them and say, come on, guys, why don't you get into worship more like the girls do? What have you just communicated to those boys? Worship is for girls. So if you enjoy worship like the girls do, then maybe you're not really a boy or just fact out worship is for girls. Same thing would be true the other way. And so when we don't understand the, how God created genders differently, we can sometimes step over the line, and rather than helping them become true and godly men or godly women, we end up reinforcing something about the church or something about their identity that God never intended for them to believe. So the enemy is out to attack every person and every, every establishment. But here's what I don't want you to un- misunderstand about this. The culture will try to tell us that the topic of gender is really a cultural conversation and it has no business in the church. And so you as a faith believer, as a leader in the church, are up against a tough battle right now because people say, well, don't come at me with the word of God because I'm basing what I do on science or on research or on studies or whatever. And I'm here to tell you that first and foremost, the topic of gender is a biblical conversation. It is rooted in the word of God, in how he designed men and women, how he created us to be. And so you have the right to have that conversation. But let me encourage you to do it in the way of love and in the, in, through relationship, not on a soapbox on social media. Okay? Please don't take any of my content and tweet it out as something that would be perceived as hateful. But take what you're learning here, wrestle with it, study it, understand it, and make it your own as you have conversations. The other thing I want you to remember is when we get to the part on transgender, we're going to talk a little bit about transgender here in a minute. 
um, keep in mind that the world right now is very confused about these topics. And there's a lot of pressure on parents to raise their kids a specific way. One of the downsides of social media is now you have, parents have the ability to compare everything they're doing with something else and everything you post on social media has the ability to be judged by others who have no idea of the context. Okay? So if a child comes home from school because of what they've been teaching in the public school or what uh, the friends are saying or even what they're picking up in media and begins to express something to parents, the parents' pressure to try to conform to society is so high. Now, by the time they come to the church, unless they're really heavy churchgoers and there's a lot of trust relationship built, one, they may never come to you and ask for advice on this. And if they do, the amount of internal wrestling and turmoil they've gone through is significant. So if they were to come and say, you know, I need to meet with you, pastor, because Johnny came home and says he wants to be Sally, or Sally came home and says they want to be Johnny. And if your reaction is so strong and so like, what are we going to do? Again, it's creating a wall and a bridge. Or if if you're judgmental with them, you're only confirming to them that the church does not really know how to engage this conversation. You're engaging it a little bit like the Pharisees did in Jesus' time with people who were caught caught struggling with sins. They would judge them and throw rocks at them or tell people to throw rocks at them instead of having the compassion to say, I understand the entanglement of sin is really strong on you right now. So how do I journey with you through this? Make sense? So I want you to just know that's my vantage point from the beginning. Um, I also want you to know that I've done a lot of research and study. There are people who have done more than I have. I've not done any of my own studies, but I've read a lot of books of people who have. At the end, I'll put a slide up on the screen that will show you all the books that I've done for research. Also, my notes, I've given them to Matt. They're all footnoted. So anytime I have a quote or a stat, you can see exactly where it's come from. Now, I also want you to know that in that research, some of the people, some of the authors use similar or the same studies and they come up with two different conclusions. Okay, what does that tell you? That tells you everyone who studies this topic begins with a worldview perspective about the topic that they filter it through myself included, yourself included. When you hear what I'm going to hear today, you're filtering it through a worldview. So to be fair to you, I want you to know my biblical, my worldview is based on what I believe the Bible talks about the God's design for boys and girls, for men and women, for all of humanity. And I filter what I read in those books through the lens of scripture so that it lines up with what I believe scripture teaches, not the other way around. And that's one of the dangers in the church is that we try to take what the world is telling us and align the scripture to that. Make sense? So I unashamedly am telling you that I'm not trying to twist the research and what I'm reading to make it support scripture, but I can't get away from my worldview being biblical and saying, okay, the word of God is what I stand on. And I'm going to wrestle with this topic until I find how it aligns with Scripture, not wrestle with Scripture to make it align with the topic. Okay? So a couple pieces I just wanted to let you know from the beginning um, on that. All right, let's talk about the attack on gender. How do we know that the gender is being attacked in our world today? Well, there's a couple of things that are happening. First of all is the word cisgender. How many have ever heard the word cisgender before? 
Okay, so cisgender is basically this. You can go ahead and hit the next slide up there. Cisgender is this. Um, the culture has provided a name or a label for people who identify, this is their definition, not mine, identify with the gender assigned at birth. Okay, so if you were born and on your birth certificate they wrote male and today as an adult you identify as a male, you are cisgender. If they were given male and you identify as female, you are considered transgender. Make sense? Okay, so they've given a label to people based on, uh, on that. Why is that? One, because labels tend to dehumanize what's going on. So one thing that when we talk about transgender, it has a tendency in our, we have to we be careful that we don't dehumanize the individual because of the label. It is a real person struggling with their gender, their identity, and when we say, oh, they're transgender, it has a tendency to push down the human aspect of it. It is a real person that God created that has a plan for their life, that loves desperately, that wants to rescue them. They are a person that he wants us to love more than they are a transgender. Understand that? Okay. But we have a label now. If you identify as the, the gender assigned at birth, you are considered cisgender. Now, let me help you understand one other word that's in here. This word right here, assigned. That word is problematic. Why is it problematic? Because gender is not assigned. It is identified or it is recognized at birth. That's important you understand that because they will slide that, the culture will slide that word in there to say you've been assigned a gender. We should not assign gender. Can I just tell you something? No one assigned to me my eye color. No one assigned to me my blood type. No one assigned to me my skin color. No one assigned to me any of those things that visibly they could see and, I, and just identify or discern about me. The same would be true of our gender. So if you have a XX or an XY chromosome, your physical features, except for a very small percentage of people, the physical features that they see in you will identify the chromosomes that you have. Okay? So I want you to understand, again, that's part of the attack on that. Another one is birth certificates. In some locations, uh, they now have the, they're now giving another option. Either A, you can leave it blank until the child decides what gender they want to be, or B, they have other options like male, female, or other. So that's another way that gender is being attacked. What about response forms? So if you've ever signed up for something online, and they're saying, you know, what's your name, your address, your age, what's your gender, and they now have options, male, female, prefer not to say, or other. In some instances, like Facebook at one point, I don't know if they still do, but at one point, Facebook had over 60 options for gender. Right? Okay, it gets, it gets almost worse than that, because Tinder, the dating app, had 40. Can you imagine trying to find somebody to date? And like, oh, which of the 40 genders am I willing to date, right? <laughs> Go figure. Um, so the response forms, what about sensitivity training? Teachers in public schools and administrators have, have a level of required training that they have to go through on sensitivity related to gender. What, are they, what does that mean? That means, okay, class, we're going to introduce ourselves today. I'm going to say my name and my preferred pronouns. And then you're going to say your name and your preferred pronouns. And how you engage in conversation with your students in your class is something that we are now training teachers how to do. So hello, my name is Mark Ensminger, and my preferred pronoun is them and they. Okay? 
So sensitivity training. Another one is illegal counsel. They've made counseling illegal. So if a child says, I believe I'm a boy, but I believe I should be a girl, in some places, counseling them to stay as a boy is now illegal. That you could lose your license, you could no longer practice in that state. So think about all the faith-based people who are doing counseling. It could be considered illegal to try to help that child know how to understand that, that their, their mind doesn't necessarily match their body. They're not trying to make their body match their mind. Okay? In fact, there's a story, uh, Texas, there was a, a couple that got divorced. They had one child between the two of them. The child was saying that they were the wrong gender. The mom was saying, uh, I want them to go through the surgery and hormone treatment. The dad was saying no, and it ended up in court. It could also be considered child abuse in some places to not let your child uh, express themselves as the gender. Now, for the basis of this conversation, when we speak specifically of transgender, I want you to know that when I define a transgender, it is not just dressing or behaving like the other gender. I'm using the word transgender to mean you are pursuing or undergoing surgery reassignment and hormonal treatments. Okay, so so for the for the balance of this, when we talk about transgender, that's what we're going to be referring to. So are you with me? This is why gender matters. Right. We've got to understand this stuff. Um, And at the root of everything with transgender, if we're going to make it and what's the spiritual application of this spiritually? How do we help our children, our teenagers navigate transgender at the root of it is identity rooted in Jesus Christ. So rather than a pronoun of a he, a she, a them, or a they, what if we were saying, you know what, you are a child of God, and I want God to speak his identity over you, not let you just come up with an identity of what you feel at the moment, okay? So let's talk a little bit more about transgender. Again, this is a person who's going to pursue hormonal or surgical treatments uh, to make the full transition from one gender to the other. Um, there's a, the problem with this, uh, all the attention on transgender and hypersensitivities is parents often feel like they're bad parents if they don't let their child express themselves however they want. Now, for years, kids like to play act, right? I'm a kitten, and I'm going to lick my hand, and I want to eat off the floor, but it's a phase, right? We're not going to have claws surgically implanted, uh, we're not going to always feed them. We're not going to put a collar around them and lead them or little, with little bells on it. We're not going to shine little laser lights all day in them. So there are phases that they go through. Um, but where it crosses the line, and, and, and um, there are times when people will um, say, well, I want to play act like I'm a girl or I'm a boy, the other gender. Those kinds of things, again, those are things that kids have been doing for years. They play act as all different kinds of things. So that's kind of normal. But now when it comes to gender, it's no longer play acting. It is a self-discovery of who you are. So that pressure for parents is, is enormous. And so with all of that, that attention, if a child indicates something and a parent tries to guide them somewhere else, all of a sudden they're identified as bad parents. So there's a widespread assumption that if a boy says he's a girl or the other way around, the child will be happier, healthier, and more fulfilled if the grown-ups facilitate a transition to the other sex. Note this, there is no long-term study, this is like a take-home quote right here, there is no long-term study that provides support for this assumption. 
not one. There is, however, compelling evidence that this assumption is often inaccurate. So right now, culture says, if your boy begins to act out like a girl, you should encourage them to explore and ultimately help them with a transition. Because we believe they'll be healthier, happier, and more fulfilled if you start them as early as you can start them on that transition, the better off that they're going to be. Not one single study supports that. In fact, it's the other way around. Now, where did we, how did we get here? Maybe that's a question you're asking. How, how did this become such a thing? In the 70s and 80s, there was a research, and I wish I could remember his name, um, up in Canada. In a very well-known case, you see, one of the physi- physiological things that can happen with, with uh, infants when they're born, uh, is there is an abnormality where, um, say, a um, biological male is not born with the anatomy that's visible. So it does happen. Well, in this, in this landmark uh, case or this situation, they, they met with the doctors. They met with this, this gentleman from, from Canada, and he said, you know what? Have, have the surgery to remove what's there and implant the female body parts and start the hormonal treatments as soon as you can and sociologically or surround this child with everything to grow them up to be a girl. Dress like a girl. Give them girl toys. Give them all these things. And so everyone's paying close attention because we all believed at that point that gender was something that was just your surroundings based on the nurture. If it's a nature nurture scale. So it's how you nurture people that determines if they're boys or they're girls. So you're saying, do this, do this, do this. And there's studies and there was articles written and there were journals made for the years that followed and saying, look at how happy and well adapted this young girl is. Well, get this. There was a twin, a boy, two twin boys were born. Only one of them had this physiological issue. So the other boy was raised as a boy. So it's a very good study to see what happened. Well, this guy who was read, writing all of this stuff, he p- published all this research. Everyone's journaling, yes, you got to just raise your kids how you want them to be because then they can choose what gender they're going to be, blah, blah, blah. But he stops following this individual. Well, somebody kind of got wind of that and started to follow this other individual, uh, trying to research and where they are. And what he had claimed to have been true of this now girl was entirely false, was not happier, not healthier, not well-adjusted. In fact, was very frustrated, was very angry. And what we find over and over with these studies is most of those children who go through those transitions as children, again, there's not one single study that says they're happier, healthier, more fulfilled. So that's how we got here, and now people aren't willing to say, oops. So we're doubling down and saying, no, we're going to prove we're right. But that's where the church has to come and stand in the gap and say, you know what? Sometimes we listen to the word of God because it's never changing, not the research that people are saying that's kind of helps them pay their bills at the end of the day. Uh, so what do we know? We know that most young boys who say they are girls do not grow up to be men who think that they're women, and vice versa. In fact, in every study, a great majority of boys grew up to be men who had no interest in becoming women. In other words, just like being a kitten, it was a phase. In one of the largest studies of 139 boys who insisted in childhood they were really girls, trapped in the boy's body, only 12% still felt that way as adolescents, And in other words, 88% of the boys grew out of it. And how many more of them once they became adults? So when you understand this whole transgender piece, if parents come to you and like, I don't know what to do, you can be pretty safe to say, you know what, mom and dad, let's look at this more as a phase than anything. 
And we're going to look at how we can explore what, what's causing this young boy to think he's a girl or this girl to be a boy. And there are ways that you can do that by helping to expose them to maybe some, um, some more atypical activities. For instance, one boy who said he wanted to be a girl, what he found out was his understanding of boys was all football and rough and tumble play and really rather would play tennis and do ballet. So once the mom understood what was going on, she was able to engage this boy into different kinds of sports and activities so that he was a well-adjusted young man rather than trying to force him into those things and confirm, that's not for me, I must not be a boy. So there's ways that you can help to nurture those things um, in students. What? Well, let's move on now uh, to really understanding, again, the differences, because there are what we call hardwired differences or um, evidence that's found around the globe within the DNA that makes a difference between men and women, male and female. But there are also social constructs or learned behaviors, the nurture side of things, that how people are raised help to reinforce certain activities that they do. For instance, one of the things is boys do tend to play with trucks more, and it could be that's simply because parents give boys trucks more than they give them dolls. Okay? It's not because genetically boys have to play with trucks, but parents don't shop in the pink aisle. I have, the pink aisle scares me at Walmart. We have two boys, and so the pink aisle scares me because I don't know what to buy there for my little niece uh, when it's her birthday. And so uh, it's because of people who buy, you know, the way they do things. So here's, here's an interesting thing that Michael Gurian said, and Michael Gurian is one of the foremost uh, researchers when it comes to brain development in, uh, as it relates to gender in kids. Many, by the way, many people will tell you that it's, it's too much of a, uh, a, not a concrete science in understanding brain development in children because of the neuroplasticity, the brain shapes so much. So there's not a lot of people who get into that space and speak confidently. Michael Gurian uh, has done a ton of that really on single gender classrooms and all different kinds of things. So if you re- see anything from Michael Gurian, it's pretty good. He does believe we cut here by evolution, but he didn't do research on evolution. He did research on the brain. So we trust his brain science, not his creation science. Okay, he says this, um, you'll be asserting that both sexes have existed for years and will exist for as long as humanity. After you read some of his books, he says this, the genders are templated to work together in complementary rather than in opposition. Their sexual baseline is binary, male, female, binary. You'll be empowered to say, even while certain aspects of gender can become fluid. In other words, I like things that are a little bit more like, uh, like male, or I like things that are a little bit more like what would be considered female. Seeing both the binary and the fluid at once is a quote-unquote small thing that is revolutionary for our children. So let's look at some of these differences. I'll buzz through them kind of quickly because I do want to try to provide time for Q&A at the end. So, some of the general differences between boys and girls. Stress. Girls, typically under under stress, look for comfort and support. Boys want to be left alone. In the classroom, boys, if they're a friend with the teacher, they're considered a suck-up, unless the teacher is also the coach, and by which case, it's cool to be friends with the teacher. But girls, on the other hand, it's a sign of establishment or respect when they're a friend of the teacher's. Uh, relational posture. Girls love to connect more face-to-face and dialogue. Boys love to connect while they're doing things. So if you think about your ministry environment, whether it's youth or kids, and you look at where and they're coming and playing, like, okay, who, when they come into the, this kid's space here, you've got gaga in the back, you've got a climbing wall, and you've got sitting areas. Which genders do you think default to gaga? Boys, right? How about the climbing wall? 
boys, but probably a little bit of both. How about sitting and talking? Girls, right? So you can see how girls are going to be more relational, sit and connect. Guys are going to be more do stuff. We get to know each other by our sweat and smell and bumping into each other. Girls get to know each other by actually speaking and communicating. Um, So what about self-directed small groups? Well, boys are probably going to do whatever they want to when you give them time to do something on their own. Girls are probably going to do what you've asked them to do. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about the senses. And by the way, girls will also ask for help where boys, again, they'll just change the subject to something that they already know. What about the battle of the senses? The battle of the senses, um, hearing sensitivities. By the way, some of these studies compared men to chim- or people to chimpanzees, which is really kind of interesting, uh, because uh, obviously there'd be more genetically in common with men and male chimpanzees than, uh, than there would be in the, in the raising of males and raising of male chimpanzees, because male chimpanzees don't play video games and play with trucks and those, like the men do. Anyways, um, but in some ways we have, men have more in common with male chimpanzee DNA than we actually do with women. Okay, very interesting insight on that one. All right. Hearing sensitivity. Which gender do you think hears better? (laughs) Enough said. It is the women. The women have a better way of hearing. Women's hearing sensitivity is generally better. So if you're on your radio in the car, about three to four clicks is about the difference between the preferred volume for men and for women. Men need it louder. So think about this in your discipleship context. It's a context like this. If I am a female teacher and I'm speaking a little bit quieter, which generally women have a little bit quieter voice, and you have boys who are a little bit disengaged in the back, is that going to be easier or harder for them to be focused than if they were in the front? Harder, right? Has nothing to do with them being in the front so we can keep our eye on them. It has everything to do with what they're hearing. In the same way, if you have girls in the front and a man is speaking and he's loud and he's boisterous, the girls might think he's mad at them. So volume matters and how we communicate matters. Uh, let's go on to smelling receptors. Women, gen- which one do you think has better smelling receptors, male or female? Girls, you're right again. Yeah, girls, t- I mean, my wife pre-COVID, before she had COVID, she would walk into her room, something smell here. Now I'm kind of loving it because she doesn't have any clue. It's like, does something smell in here? I'm like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? Your nose doesn't work. So... Um, it's one of the nice byproducts of that. Like when you grow up, when you have three boys and even our dogs are boys, so four boys in the house, it's like this is like a dream for us. Don't have anybody over though. Um, but women's smelling actually works a little bit better than men's do uh, when it comes to some of those kinds of sensitivity. That's why you have moms who are always reminding their teenage boys, you need to go take a shower. Motion and color. So here's an interesting side of this one. Men typically, again, this is DNA. This is hardwired into us. Men are better at seeing speed and direction. Women are usually better at seeing color, definition, and texture, the details of things. Okay? So what does that mean? That means if you were to put a slide up here, like I've got here with all these beautiful colors that you see on there, the women are more naturally probably going to be drawn to that picture. But if I put a picture that showed motion or action in there, again, the guys are going to be. So when you think about visually in your room, the motion and the action visuals are great for the guys and the color and detail. All right, let's go kid men all, all over here. When you have, hand out coloring pages to boys and girls, how many colors of crayons do boys use? 
One, yeah, one or two. Like the first class, it was like everyone's like unanimously one, right? It's like, and it's usually black, right? <laughs> Girls will use every color, every color in the box, and they're going to go borrow from the other table, aren't they? Right? So color and detail. That, that's just they're living out part of way the way God has wired their eyes to see the things in this world. So we can encourage boys. By saying, boys, I'm gonna, I want you to practice using more color. But you see the difference in, boys, I want you to practice using more color. And boys, I want you to use more color like the girls do. Do you see the difference? When we start using gender comparative language, what we end up risking is communicating to the one gender that this is actually an activity for them, but I want you to do it. Or if you like doing it the way the girls do, maybe you're really not that other gender. Okay? That's why gender matters. The more we understand about the way God hardwired us for gender, the more we can help make sure that we don't short-circuit his divine development in their life. Um, All right, nature and aggression um, and beauty and movement. Um, Boys generally are a little bit more aggressive, and girls are typically a little bit more on the, the nature side of things. Um, sometimes we get, we cross the line a little bit when it comes to, uh, to aggression and activity. So if we were to ask the children to draw a picture of, uh, their family, again, we've already, we've already determined that boys are going to use one color and girls are going to use 11 different colors in their coloring page. But also what you're going to find is that boys might have a lot of what scribbles on their page. And girls are going to be much more delicate and refined on that. Can I give you a clue as to why? It could be that the boys are just really not great at coloring. But it could also be that because boys are more inclined towards motion and activity, they're using the scribbles to try to show that something is moving. Something's happening on the page. Because to them, the detail is less important than the actually doing of the thing. Let me also give you just a little insight that boys are also more likely to have, uh, in their drawings, they're going to have things that are extreme. Like they're going to have crashes and accidents and weapons and things that are thrown through the air and things that are bleeding, right? All of these are more like what boys are going to do. We can sometimes emasculate boys if we don't understand at what point them expressing what's in their mind in artwork if we don't know where it crosses the line. So, obviously, there are things we need to be careful of. There are warning signs. Here's a couple of them. If a boy draws a picture um, and and has some of those aggressive kinds of things in it, generally, I would not be concerned. Until if he sits down with you and starts explaining, well, this is so-and-so, and and they're cutting them with a knife, or, or they're, they're beating somebody up, and they're using names, and it's very, very specific. Then you know psychologically in their mind there's something way more than just trying to show action activity. So you do need to lean into it, but please, not everything that shows action is a cause for an alarm, but you do want to pay attention to those things so that you can be careful that something doesn't become a major issue down the road. Um, when boys see an object... They ask, or girls ask, what is it? And boys ask, where is it going? Um, if they're saying, okay, am I interested in this subject or am I interested in this topic? Girls are going to want you to connect it to their life. Boys are going to want to focus, again, on the action. Um, so, again, storytelling about scripture. 
girls, if you're telling a story about Jonah and the whale, the boys are going to love the action of Jonah. In fact, they're probably going to want to be the hero. They're going to see themselves as the hero called Jonah. But girls are going to want to connect it. So what does this mean for my life today? See, the difference in how we teach in the scripture can really help us make sure that we don't leave one of the genders behind. Um, So girls want it to relate to the world. Boys want to identify with the hero. All right, risk-taking. It seems systemically that boys overestimate their ability or underestimate the risk. Uh, That's why they take flying leaps off of things, because they don't realize how far it is down from the tree branch or how hard the ground is once they get there. But at the same time, when girls are a little bit less of a risk-taker, doesn't mean that they're naturally safer um, I mean, that, that is true, but we might need to encourage girls, we need to encourage boys to think before you leap. We might need to encourage girls to take a little bit of a risk. So a study was done, very interesting, as we think about leveling the paying field. There's some research done that shows that a woman and a man, a male and female doing the same job with the same experience, the same education, the, the female gets paid less than the male does. It's an unfortunate fact. Hopefully we can change that as we move into the future. But one of the contributing factors of that is from this research, said that men were more willing to risk negotiating their salary than the woman was. So before they were even hired, only 7% of women asked for a higher wage compared to 57% of the men. So if we don't encourage women to take risks, we could be setting them up for not making as much money down the road. So that's why we encourage women, hey, volunteer, and you help to draw people out and to encourage that kind of thing. As far as learning goes, different studies have been done and had a little bit of a variety of results. But overall, it's been very clear that boys' brains develop at a slower pace than girls. Doesn't mean that boys are dumb. I mean, if it was a woman teaching this, she might say it a different way. But for me, doesn't mean boys are dumb. It just means that their brains develop at a different pace. So think about uh, learning to write and learning to read in kindergarten, preschool, first grade, and second grade, that kind of range. Girls are going to be about a year, and it takes a while for the boys to catch up. So if you're in a church setting working with kids, and you're sitting around saying, okay, who wants to read? And it's first graders. Your girls may be more, uh, maybe better readers than your boys are, and the boys might get nervous and embarrassed, and now they hate coming to church because it exposes the fact that I'm dumber than the girls are. Or it reinforces, well, the Bible and the church must be for girls. It's not for me because I really don't like to read the Bible. So again, those are dynamics that when you understand gender, you can help to make sure that your discipleship environment is ready to roll. All right. We already covered boys and girls face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder. All right. Um, So one of the things, one of the challenges we have is if we try to communicate that all boys are supposed to behave like girls or all girls are supposed to behave like boys, we can inadvertently confirm to them that either they're the wrong gender or that church is not for them. Like we said earlier, if we say, can you worship like the girls do? We're saying worship is for girls, right? Or can you do this like the boys do? Can you go and evangelize and be risky about sharing your faith? Then we might say that evangelism is only for boys. Interesting fact here, although we talked about the risk-taking, one of the interesting dynamics of that, I think as we get older, I think women more naturally um, adapt to risk-taking than men do. I think men maybe get a little bit more safe, at least in some instances, and here's how it plays out. There are more female missionaries, credentialed missionaries, in the Assemblies of God than there are male missionaries. Why is that? It's because as a single missionary, there are way more single female missionaries than there are single male missionaries. 
So as a single person going overseas to an unknown land, women are much more willing to take that risk than the men are. So just kind of an interesting insight. Women, you can give yourself a round of applause on that one. Way to go. Men, it's time to catch up. Get overseas. Do something. Come on. All right, so, how, so those are the hardwired pieces. What about the, the nature side? How are we, we nurtured there? Um, there are things that we do that help to foster and grow traditional uh, stereotypes. Like uh, you see pictures of babies and, and the, the, the kinds of colors and the, the toys that are around them already let you know, um, even, even without knowing the baby, what the parent sees about there. So they put a football or they put a doll or they, you know, they start to give as early gifts these kinds of things that help to reinforce these, what we would say is traditional stereotypes. The problem is, if we say, well, I'm not going to engage in this gender conversation, I'm going to be gender blind, so that way I don't offend anybody, what you end up doing is inadvertently reinforcing those negative stereotypes, okay? So if you don't understand that not all boys need to play football or like rough and tumble play, then you could inadvertently say to that boy who doesn't like that and force them into that place rather than giving them the space to try something a little bit different. Same thing with girls. How many guys here like to hunt? Okay, we have four, four true men in here. <laughs> right? How many females like to hunt? Oh, no, we have, we have one, two, three. We have, we have more guys in here then, right? See? See that? So, so when you see that example, we like, and people are like coming up ready to fight me right now, right? There is nothing written anywhere that says all men like to hunt or need to like to hunt and women should not like to hunt. But stereotypically, we would assume that when you talk hunting, it's more male and not female. So again, when you don't understand the genders and, and how that can work, we can, un, we can unintentionally reinforce. So that's why being gender blind is not the way to go. You do need to understand the genders, but you also need to understand there's variance in there. So it's not bad for men to not like to hunt, and it's not bad for women to like to hunt. And same thing with cooking and all these other things. So that's what I'd just caution you on, and thank you for coming to this class to learn some of those gender pieces. Now you'll know if in your church you see somebody saying, hey, I'm just gender blind, that's a cause to just kind of say, hey, let me, let me help you understand a little bit more about the genders. So there are some stereotypes to avoid, um, like these ones here. Again, the stereotypes would be what you're trying to um, say to a boy about being a boy, and it's really not, it's really not just for every boy. Um, all boys are rough and tough. All boys like contact sports. All boys like cars. On the girls' side, all, boy, all girls can love to cook. They should love taking care of children. Girls love bunnies and stuffed animals. Uh, they're not good at science and math. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you might hear people say. Now, they're not going to say it like all boys, but they're going to say it more in the, in the, in the case of um, trying to push the boy who's a little bit more reserved into the rough-and-tumble play because they believe that every boy should, should uh, act out in that way or that every boy should like contact sports. On the flip side of that, there are some stereotypes that we should embrace. Again, typically, boys struggle a little bit more with politeness and manners. I don't know how many times we sit around the table with three boys and my wife and, and how many times we are the ones who have, have the, let the belches and the gas go, and my wife doesn't, right? So politeness and manners is more of a deal. For, but to say, hey, every boy should have good manners is certainly something that we should reinforce. 
on the girl's side, they can be friends with everyone, they can get along. So there are some things that typically a gender might struggle with that you can lean into that space. It's more those other things that, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal that we try to avoid. In the ministry, I want to walk you through a couple of ministry method ideas. Um, Go ahead and jump up to that chart, if you would. So most ministries, if you were to look at this a little bit like a chart, on the top left, you see the co-ed and the kids are mixed. Most ministries are going to divide either by age or by gender. You know, nursery, preschool, elementary, middle school, high school, young adult. They're going to divide that way because of uh, developmental differences. Or they might, they might divide on gender, boys and girls. So they'll have classes for boys, classes for girls. They'll divide that way. Um, but in, in this regard, I would say because most are in the mixed area... What's happening there is everyone's coming into one room and whatever leaders are available, they're doing the ministry. And that's a great place to start. But because you're here and you're keying into, okay, there's some different things we might want to do to help elevate the level of discipleship, the way the word of God is being conveyed to the heart of the boys and girls, you might want to work your way across this chart and ask the first question, well, can the kids be separated by gender? And if they are, now they're in a single gender environment. And there are things that change immediately when you have boys and you have girls that are separate. So there's things you can do differently. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have only males and only females. But if you do, you go down to another level. Your leaders, if you can get men with boys and women with girls, now you're recruiting people to be godly gender role models. So what I need is I need a leader who can come in and be an example of what a godly man looks like and spend time with these boys. And I need a woman who's a godly example of a leader to come in and spend time with these girls. So now it's not just crowd management, it's faith impartation. It's what God's put in you going to the next generation, and it's helping them, like we said from the very beginning, the Boys are going to see what it looks like for a godly to become a godly man or the girls to become a godly woman. What about lesson content? Well, in your co-ed environment, you've got to preach and teach to both genders equally. But if you can create content specifically for them, you might be able to do some things different in a, in a uh, gender-aligned environment. So let me give you an example of this one. Think about the questions you would use in discovery. Uh, let's use David and Goliath. In the boys, they're looking for what? They're looking for action, they're looking for motion, and they're looking to be what? The hero. So what questions would you ask of boys about David and Goliath? What did David throw, right? Where did he hit Goliath? How tall do you think Goliath was? When it's the hero, what kind of questions would you ask to boys? How do you think it felt to be David, right? What do you think it was like for him to be the only one who was out there? Now you take it on a deeper level and say, okay, what would you imagine is your Goliath in the world today? What would you throw at it? How would it feel to be the only one? Let's pivot now to girls. Girls are more interested in what? How does it apply to real life? So the questions you might ask about David and Goliath with a room full of girls is, you know what, let's tell a story sometime about when you faced a giant. What was that like? Or what kind of a difference do you think it made for the children of Israel to know that Goliath was defeated? So now you're connecting it. So you see the questions, the content could be the same, but the questions could be different to allow a different kind of application. Now, can you do that in a co-ed? Absolutely. You just take all those questions that I do, and now you have hit the boys and you have hit the girls because we can all answer those same kinds of questions. All right. What about leader training? The last one is this. 
you have very little gender training requirements in a co-ed world. You don't necessarily don't need it. Uh, you might need it. Like if you say, man, this was so good. I'm so glad I had this. You could benefit even when your kids are in co-ed environment. But if you're going to move to a gender aligned where boys, and, lead, boys and, and male leaders and girls and female leaders are together exclusively in their classroom, you, don't, you can't do that and not have the training, that kind of training that we're going through right now. Because to do that ends up doing what? Here's the, here's the reality. Um, men and women, as they grow older and older, they learn how to adapt to some of the preferences of the other gender. Following me on that? Let me explain a little bit. So men typically are all about watching the kids play or gauging with them in rough and tumble. But you move them into a classroom environment, and most of them had females as teachers. So how did they learn the classroom should function? the way the female teacher did it. So now the male, even though he's not wired that way, is more likely to step in and try to facilitate a class the way he saw a female do it. So you almost have to train the men how to mentor and disciple the boys. And at the same way, you might have to help the women understand how boys function if they're in a co-ed environment and vice versa. So that's where that leader training can really help you so that you... Um, if you, you don't, did, did I share, and I'm getting my classes confused, did I already share about the boys over here that were worshiping? That was a previous one, wasn't it? Okay. You can end up with, with people who are disciplining the kids rather than really drawing them closer to Jesus. Let me give you this example. So I was coaching a, a church children's ministry a, a couple years ago, and we would come forward, the kids would come forward for worship and for prayer, and there was a group of about six or seven boys over here that would just kind of play around. They had the fidget spinners, so that kind of tells you how long ago it was, and they would play with those fidget spinners, and you still have one, don't you? What? Yeah, no, not, not me. And so they'd sit over here, and they'd play, right? And, and so what I'm watching is, is all the leaders are standing around the room, and the kids are misbehaving, misbehaving, they would come over and say, hey guys, enter into worship, and then they'd go back to where they were standing. How long do you think that worked? Not very well. They'd come back up, hey guys, whatever. So I stepped in, because I was coaching the, the group, I stepped up to the men, and, and actually the women as well, I said, hey guys, today in worship, here's what I want you to do. When you see those boys that are really not entering in, I want you to go up and stand in the middle of them. I don't want you to correct them. I don't want you to instruct them. I just want you to be all about worshiping with Jesus. I said, they're not going to change today, but I want you to do that every single week. And it took about three weeks, and those boys started to enter into worship. So if we don't, if we don't understand the boys and what the boys, the boys were not rebelling against worship. The boys didn't have a model to follow. Why? Because on the platform was only women leading worship. So in their mind, worship was a woman's thing. You got all these motions that you're hip shaking and doing all this stuff. And the boy's like, I don't want to do that. I want to punch something, right? So note to self, when you're doing kids worship, put in some punches, put in some karate kicks, right? You got to bring it. And then, and then it's okay sometimes to, you know, do this for the girls, you know, and uh, whatever you got to do. Come on, you got the fidget spinner. I'll fight you, right? <laughs> no, I won't. You look like you'd take me. So if we don't train our leaders in how the gender, what the genders need, they're gonna, you're going to look at those boys that are misbehaving, not realizing they have no male role models on the platform. They have no males in the middle of them. And everyone who comes up to them is saying, you're doing it wrong. 
That's why gender matters. Um, last illustration, then we'll do questions. Same church, another young boy, um, and he, probably, he may have had some like ADD kinds of things going on as well, but man, he just ran around. He, during worship, he'd just run. He'd lay down in the middle, like right in the middle of the floor, and he'd look up at the ceiling, and he'd roll over, and he'd spin around in circles, and he'd do all this stuff. And again, I watched the leaders go over and really try to pull him up, pull him up. And I just went and said, hey, man, do you want to come up and worship? And he says, I am worshiping. This is how I worship. I said, you know what? You're not bothering anybody. You're not distracting. As long as you keep what you're doing, you know, so it doesn't bother anybody, I'm okay with how you worship. See, that's the difference when, and really, we're saying it's about gender, but really ministry is about the person. So can we, for the last little bit, just really say that everything that we're learning here about gender, I'm really trying to help you understand it's about the person. Even when you have somebody come in, and I promise you, with as many leaders as we have in this church, depending on the size of your community and the size of your church, you already have a transgender child in your ministry, and you may not even know it. So how do you treat them? You treat them as a person with a name, with God's hand on their life. You treat their parents with people who have hopes and dreams for their child, who just like parents who don't have a trans child have dreams for them and concerns for them, and they're wondering, am I doing it right? I don't know how many times, I mean, we raise our boys in the church as best that we can, but we still say, man, did I do it right? Every single parent has that common denominator. We just never talk about it. So at the end of the day, yes, gender matters, but what matters more is the individual and that we love them and we show the love of Jesus to them. And sometimes the best way that we can do that is to really understand God's design for men and for women and to also not try to fit them into a box that's too small for God to work through. Amen? All right, we've got... Zero minutes left. Let's get some questions. <laughs> but we have, do we have some time? Yeah. Oh, I knew that they were going to be late, so I just gave you all the bonus content. All right, so we got some time for questions. What, uh, yeah, around. just wait for the question, wait for the microphone, and okay. so we can get it recorded, and then I'll try to my best to give you an intelligent response. So I loved what you were saying about the, the different questions with David and Goliath. And um, I'm thinking about our kids' ministry, and there are no men that I can think of off the top of my head that are involved in any way. Um, and especially with the fourth through sixth graders, they're grouped together, and it's always very difficult because the boys are roughhousing and the girls want to sit there and answer the questions. And so I guess it's a double-sided question of... Um, like, if, if we were to separate by gender, because that is something they've discussed doing, is separating the girls and the boys, would, I guess, would it be more beneficial for them to have a male as a leader? And seeing as how that's not the case right now, what's a way for us to kind of still fill that space um, in the meantime? Great question. Yeah, the, I would say it's better if there is a male in there. It's better if the male who's in there knows what he's doing, okay? If you can't find a male who knows what he's doing, finding a female and that can facilitate the small group discussion is great. 
then try to find a male or an older male teen, uh, an adult male or an older teenager male, and say your number one job is to be a godly example to these people, and so and and to have them be there as as a co learner. Um, so that would be maybe a little bit of a scale of where to go. And I would say this also: when you understand this, it changes how you recruit. It can change how you recruit. Because now you're no longer saying, I just need, I need men. Why? Because we got stuff to set up and stuff to clean up and the boys are so rambunctious. It changes it, doesn't it? Why do I need a man? Because these kids need a godly man like you to look up to. So you've got to be here every single week. I'm going to do my best to make it as easy as I can, but I want you to be fully man in there and I want you to lead those kids. And, and I would just, I'd pray them in. And if you, can get, if you can get even a team of men to come in or one man to build a team, I think that works better too. Um, no man wants to be the only guy in a room full of women. Um, and, and I'll say in, in a teaching environment, men most, mostly, again, generalization, 100% right, 80% of the time, most men are going to feel inadequate compared to a woman when it comes to teaching. And so that's where if you can bring, and so men with boys only, they're going to be feel safer in that environment leading that small group than having women in there as well. They're, they might feel a little bit like they're being supervised or their mom is there. And so to have, to really have a man maximize, sometimes you have to remove the women um, just to help them really step up into a leadership role. Um, and it's just one of those interesting dynamics that I've seen play out. But um, separating the boys, having a woman in there, great move. Make sure she knows what she's doing. If you can recruit an older male, an older teen, here's just kind of a, a free tip for you. Every age looks up to the next age as their hero. So your older elementary kids are looking to the high schoolers as, man, those people walk on water. So if you can have some of those people who are mature and godly examples as your worship leaders or a small group co-leaders or, you know, don't have them alone, but co-leaders, again, that can go a long way, especially if you're coaching and training them, that your number one job is not just to be here, but to be an example while you're here. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Uh, my question's around um, engaging students who are transitioning. So they're anatomically male and female or vice versa. Um, and how that relates to how we think about gender specific uh, ministry, right? So I'm imagining a student who's coming to our ministry, we do a small group breakout, and he says, well, Brother Kavar, I wanna be with the sisters. Um, do you have advice on how we can say what our statement is and why we're preferring that they go with the boys? Or are we like, we love you, so here, you know, so. I have no idea. <laughs> no, great question. This is, I say that in jest, because this, this is, I can tell you're, you're hitting at the heart, really, of, um, and, and I love the attitude that you ask, because you're not trying to create a cut and dry, do this, don't do that. You're trying to help understand the individual person. So I think step one is, you've got to get together with your church leadership. You've got to be together on that same page. Here's our approach, not your approach, our approach, how our church is going to love and welcome people who are transitioning regardless of their age. How we're going to have bathroom policies, how we're going to do all of these different things is really more of a church decision than an individual ministry decision. So if you've not had that conversation yet, please prompt your leadership to do that 
so that you can be on the same page there. And it might be different depending on the, the city that you're in. So please don't judge other churches if their policy is different. The other thing I'd say that's different too is this. If you are very even evangelistically focused, you have a lot of unsaved people coming into your church, your answer, again, might be different than if you're more discipleship-focused of people who've been in the church a long time. So again, there's not really a right answer, but I can see where that particular thing could be problematic. So some churches may opt to never move to that gender-aligned piece because it makes people feel too uncomfortable, but they will incorporate those gender pieces into their co-ed so that, so that God will work in that way. Um, then after you have that, I would say it's an individual conversation with the, the parent, the child. Um, you know, I used the illustration earlier that Jesus, when the woman was caught in adultery and thrown at Jesus' feet, he got down on her level, had compassion on her, and he drew in the sand. And people focus on what he drew in the sand and they miss the point. The point's not what he drew in the sand. The point was he was eye to eye with that woman. He didn't stand up over her and just continue to talk about her. He got on her level, understood what kind of embarrassment and struggle and life trap she must have been caught in. And then he looked at those men that were accusing her and saying, if you're, if you're sinless, you throw the first stone. I mean, in my mind, it was a little bit of righteous indignation, not just like, well, if you were sinless, you can throw the first stone. I mean, it was like, come on. You, do you see what kind of condition she's in? And you want us to stone her? Don't you know she's one of God's children? And he looked up at them and the youth, and so they sheepishly left. After Jesus looked at her and said, hey, where'd your accusers go? The, he then says, go and sin no more. So what did he do in that moment is he spoke to her identity and her worth. And then he spoke to her spiritual condition. So whenever you have those, I think as a default, no matter what your policy is on that, your default is we're going to speak to identity and their spiritual and their, their identity and who they are in Christ as an individual, and then let the Holy Spirit continue to work on them spiritually. So not a cut and dry answer, but maybe a couple of tips to help you get there. So, um, so when you had mentioned um, about men, uh, boys not you know worshiping because of certain things. What would you say um, for girls? Because a lot of my teen girls, some of my teen girls do that as well. So what would you say for teen girls that kind of uh, go through that phase as well as boys that are kind of like awkwardly there looking at the screen or looking at the band or, you know, just kind of had that thing going on? Yeah, so if you have a band, it's probably because the, the people in the band are cute. I'm just saying. Just saying. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of dynamics in that one. There's a lot of dynamics in that. Um, I would say both groups, um, they, can, they can tend to, to whatever the group is doing or the lead influencer is doing, the group will do. So if it's kind of like a click of people, it could be that one or two is kind of leading a group one way, and it might be an investment in one of those individuals. Um, and so there, there's a lot of reasons why people may or may not engage in worship. It could be a home life. It could be a lot of different things. I just know typically it's more the boys than the girls. So um, how do you engage your people in worship? What age do you work with? Teenagers. Okay. So um, I think sometimes what we, we – 
we make worship as song service, trying to get people to behave a certain way, rather than understanding that worship is a response to what God has done and providing an atmosphere there for them, for them to express. So when you think of it in the second way, here's some of the ways that you can change the environment. Um, one would be, particularly when you're singing more of the slow songs, the, the worshipful, responsive, um, is to say, you know what, as we worship, we know that singing is one way, raising your hands is one day, and, and it's biblical, and God instructs us to do that. So I want you, and have your worship leader give this kind of instruction, I want you to stand and worship, and I want you to close your eyes so that nobody's distracting you. But you know what? Worship could also be expressed in different ways. And maybe you want to sit and journal. Or maybe you'd like to come forward and grab a piece of paper and write out a prayer for you. Or write a psalm that's in your heart. Or bring your journal. Now you're beginning to expand worship as just expression of what's in your heart. More than following the instruction of, of what the leader is. But there's a lot of dynamics that go on in that one. But there's some tips that might help you to, to turn the corner on that for those teen girls. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Hello. Yeah, I was wondering, how do you know if uh, if a student is uh, who, who considers some, themselves transgender is in a phase of life versus if they have physiological things that are going on? Like, how do you make that distinction? Uh, I think some of that is conversation. Um, in in the talk that I did. Um, the first talk I did this morning, I gave people an acronym. You can write this down. It's SLOW. Can you pull up those slides real quick? SLOW. And, the, and if you were to help the parents and even you to understand, just keep this in mind. Whenever something comes your way that's a struggle spiritually with a child, keep in mind this acronym SLOW. The first one is this. You, I want you to stop. This isn't an abdication of having a difficult conversation. It is to control your composure. Because your first response will be the response they remember for the rest of their life. Okay? So before you react, before you give a response or say something you're going to regret later, stop. Secondly would be to listen. Begin to ask questions. Begin to understand. Tell me what's going on. Explain what you mean by that. And I think for what you're asking, that's probably one of the key pieces is to have conversation with them. Tell me, what, what do you mean by that? What is the future going to look like? Um, so where are you at in the process? Um, do your parents know? You know, those kinds of things. Begin to ask questions and listen. The third thing is to observe. And, and that's where you do a little bit of um, discrete de detective work and maybe talking with a couple leaders, talking with the parents, observing how they behave in the, in the group to kind of see if what they're telling you is actually being played out and how they behave. And the last thing is what's up. And that's where you listen to the Holy Spirit to really discern what are you, because God's always at work before we ever are in the life of a child. And so if you say, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you doing in this child right now, in this teenager right now? And you key into that, you might discover a root issue more than anything. Um, so those pieces may help you discover, is this really a phase? Is it really that um, something that they're going to grow out of? Or is it something that they're actually considering pursuing that as a life transition? And I'll say this, um, one of the best ways to, to help is to make your altar a place of welcome, not a place of shame. So altar calls in children's and youth ministry need to shift from, all right, who's dealing with transgenderism? I want you to come to the altar and pray to be a more of, you know what, we're talking about the identity of, of uh, your identity in Christ. 
And who wants to hear from God about your identity in Christ? I want you to come to the altar and allow him to speak to you. So when we, when we shift it and make it something that everyone can respond to, plus you partner with that worship, like writing out prayers and different things, you just might find that the Holy Spirit begins to speak to people in a way that says, you know what, I was going to do that. In fact, I heard of a camp just a couple weeks ago, a kid's camp, where a child was saving their own money to pay for their own hormone and surgical treatments to transition, saving their own money because their parents weren't going to do it, came to the altar at camp and said, I now know that I'm God's child and I'm who I'm supposed to be. So again, I don't know if there's an easy way uh, other than having those conversations and letting the Holy Spirit do some serious work and pray it up. Yeah. I think we have time for maybe one more question. Maybe. Does anyone have one more question? Yeah, we're here. Can you, microphone's coming. Yeah. If it's a good, if it's a good one. It's a good comment. I want it on the recording. Oh, I, I just wanted to not ask a question, but more comment. Like, I appreciate the dynamic of worship question because um, we're youth leaders and we're finding that like our junior high girls are just like super chatty. And so it's just, it encourages us. Um, so I just want to say thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, I think, I think overall in the church, um, we have really refined um, the aspects of a surface service to really be uh, a production because we're time-driven, multiple services, how that works. But I would really encourage you, youth and children's pastors, to not miss creating space for the Holy Spirit to do his work. So does that mean you program the Holy Spirit in? Yes and no. Know what you can cut when the Holy Spirit moves, when the Holy Spirit moves. Know that you're going to cut. A, sometimes we do all the fun stuff and leave the Holy Spirit to the end. And so by the time the Holy Spirit starts moving, you've already done the stuff you can cut. So I've, I've seen, uh, in fact, our church, uh, our children's ministry does this way. In the middle of the service, we do what's called a salvation segment. It's about a five-minute segment specifically designed to teach kids about salvation and to do an illustration. Well, that's awesome because now instead of saving it for the end, we have those kids undivided attention. And here's how it works. I'm going to talk about salvation. Those kids are going to come forward. I'm going to pray with them and we usher them out. But what if somebody doesn't raise their hands? Now you've got this kind of embarrassing, awkward moment where nobody responded. I look at every one of the kids and say, you know what? No one responded today, but that doesn't mean that somebody outside these walls doesn't need to hear this message. So I hope you're paying attention because you might want to take this and share this with your friends outside sometime, right? So now they're knowing I can be a missionary today and an evangelist, but just, I would say on the worship side, don't over-program so the Holy Spirit can't move because you've got parents waiting to pick them up because it's a school night. So cool. You guys have been great. Thanks so much. This was a fun class.